Radio Siam, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our mission? To probe the critical debates in archaeology in conversation between leading practitioners and the next generation of researchers. On March 9, 2018, archaeologist Matthew Liebman of Harvard University met with a panel of SIAMS students and faculty for a wide-ranging discussion covering collaborative archaeology, semiotic theory, and issues of hybridity. It's time to think things over. Stay tuned for Radio SIAMS. Hi, I'm Kurt Jordan. I'm the director of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies, and we're gathered here for a podcast discussion on um, March 9th, 2018. Our guest today is Matthew Liebman, who's professor of anthropology at Harvard University and a leading figure in historical archaeology of indigenous groups and uh, collaborative archaeology as well. And our discussion today is going to be focused on two of his recent publications, the first is an article from the Journal of Social Archaeology published in 2015 called The Mickey Mouse Kachina and Other Double Objects, Hybridity in the Material Culture of Colonial Encounters. And the second article is a very recent one from American Antiquity published in late 2017 called From Landscapes of Meaning to Landscapes of Significance, Signification in the American Southwest. Excuse me. So uh, we're going to ask Matt a few questions. Welcome to Cornell. Thanks for having me. All right, so I'll begin. My name is Dana Bartolf, and I'm the Hirsch Postdoctoral Associate in SIAMS uh, this year and next. I'm in the Department of Anthropology, um, and I work in the southeastern Midwestern United States as well as the Andes, um, and I study food ways, primarily through paleoethnobotany. Um, I'm also teaching an ethical issues and archaeology seminar this semester, and we've already read some of your work. Um, I noticed in the American Antiquity article, um, and you also discuss these ideas in your journal of social archaeology as well, you talk about the contributions of the Southwest School to really how we can retell um, the history of the Southwest and approach landscape archaeology. Um, I'm wondering how you balance telling stories of Pemis Pueblo and other uh, native stakeholders that might be culturally sensitive. So for example, aspects of Kachina religion that perhaps may not necessarily want to be common knowledge. How you balance that with your desire to really flesh out your anthropological narratives in ways that benefit these stakeholders. Right, right. That's a, it's a great question. Thanks. Um, and thank you all for, for having me here. Um, I mean, the short answer is, I think the nature of, of my research um, and collaborative research is that tribal members are equal research partners. So if they say they don't want me to talk about something, I don't, I respect their wishes there and I don't talk about it. Um, there are some things that I know <laughs> that they don't want me to talk about. And um, I can honestly say that I don't think I've yet hit the point where I felt like there was something that I, that could really contribute to what I was doing, but I have to stay away from. And part of that has to do with um, more the beginning of the research project than, than the end. So I've had this question before where people ask about how you balance you know, the, the, the wishes of the tribe with my research as though there's gonna be this inherent conflict. And I think those conflicts do come up for uh, anthropologists and archeologists um, uh, oftentimes, but 
the trick is to try and kind of head it off from the beginning. So at the beginning of the, the project that I talk about in the American Antiquity article, um, uh, you know, there were, there were conversations around what exactly we could and, and could not do. And I think we both tried to set the parameters for that project with an eye to avoid those kinds of conflicts um, at the end, right? So if I was, if I set off to study, um, you know, even rock art or something with a lot of Kachina iconography in it, then that could potentially lead to a point where you got into some difficult um, discussions, you know. Um, but we intentionally chose uh, uh, forms of material culture that I think they didn't feel like got into too dangerous territory. Now, it's a great question because there's no clear line between, you know, religious stuff that is off, uh, you know, off, off, off the table and the rest of their life. This is what Seth Follis has, has demonstrated so well in, in uh, his work on, on Pueblo, quote unquote, religion. <laughs> I don't think he'd want to use that, that term, but really that it permeates all aspects of life. So the other part of it is it has to be an iterative process. So it's not that I go off and write my stuff and then bring it to the tribe to get their approval. It's that throughout the process, we're communicating about how the data is being collected, what the preliminary results are, what I'm thinking in terms of interpretation, you know, at that stage, getting their feedback on that stage so that it never feels like there's a, a moment of revelation where I've gone off and done my work and then I'm coming back and saying, okay, here it is. And then they say, whoa, wait a minute. We didn't know you were going to write about that. So it's probably more about um, uh, if you can keep up the lines of communication there, you're constantly making small tacks to stay away from problematic areas um, uh, and, and respect their wishes while still moving towards the, the research goal. So um, I think that's two ways to, to kind of um, handle that issue. But I think you're certainly right. There are some things that I just don't try to include in my research that not to say I'm not interested in it, but um, it's, it's part of the respect for the community and, and respecting their, their wishes. So as interesting as it may be, I have to kind of leave that stuff uh, off the table for now. Hi, I'm Amy Camardi. I'm a PhD student in the anthropology department, and I work in Armenia studying um, human environmental interactions and sort of the social implications of biodiversity loss on communities. Um, one of the things I really uh, found interesting about your your article on landscape and sort of constituting meaning is that the meanings of landscape are not static. And I appreciated how you said that science and the ethnographic record can go together in the historical record in order to understand meaning. Um, for myself, I am a prehistoric archeologist and having this, the access you do to the descendant communities makes um, bringing the association with meaning into the landscape um, much, you know, you have a much better record of that. I was wondering what historical archeologists uh, can bring to prehistoric um, landscape work, and how can we integrate both science and meaning into this sort of idea? So that's one of the things I was hoping to get across in the using the semiotic theory that I, yeah. I do in here, um, because I think um, 
particularly indexical meanings, which uh, anthropological linguists tell us do the brunt of meaning making for us in, in um, our linguistic interactions, um, also hold sway in the archaeological record. And that should be something that is uh, more accessible for archaeologists. One of the problems is you can't think of iconicity, indexicality, and symbolism as these three separate baskets in which we drop signs, right? They, you can have, there are elements of each that can always uh, permeate um, the others. And so there are some things that it's very, very difficult, if not impossible, to get at um, in the deep prehistoric past, particularly in terms of symbolic meaning, because it, the nature of symbolic meaning is that it's arbitrary and, and um, culturally construed, right? Um, but indexicality is something that archaeologists use all the time already. So I don't mean in this article to make it that this is my, I'm, I'm the person who came up with this. We all use indexicality all the time. It's about being explicit about that level of meaning and then trying to read what it can uh, 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 tell us about how that environment would have been interpreted maybe um, in the past. So, you know, finding a, a shift in vegetation at a certain time period, that's an index of change in that landscape, right? And then we can think about the ways that may have informed um, meaning. So, um, you know, I'm using uh, uh, obsidian in this article, which we can trace to um, parts of the landscape. Um, and, and for people who in podcast land who haven't uh, read the article, one thing that I show is that when, when um, Spaniards colonize uh, this area, um, Hamas's use of one particular quarry um, um, drops, and then there's the Pueblo Revolt, the Spaniards leave, it rises again. Um, and so if we think about the meaning making that would have gone on in there, and you think about the Cerro Medio Obsidian that would have been collected, particularly during the times of Spanish colonization. So it doesn't, it doesn't go out of use entirely, right? It, it drops, so there's lower uses, but they're still using it. And then think about what the landscape would have been like at that time, right? So I talk in the article about how I think that that landscape became a particularly dangerous place for people in that period. And so that means a piece of Cerro Medio Obsidian probably meant something different to a person in 1630 it certainly carried different meanings than it would have a hundred years before. Um, and so it's not that I can read their minds, but we know that it's pointing to an area of the landscape that became more difficult to access. So whether that meaning is, was read by someone as preciosity, it's more precious, whether it was a, a, an index of the danger that's up there, um, whether it's an index of um, notions of a the kind of romanticized notions of a pre-colonial time when they didn't have to worry about that. I can't tell you exactly which of those would have been the meaning, but I can tell you that it probably almost certainly meant something different in that context than it would have meant to someone before or afterwards. So it's frustrating for archaeologists. I can't get us all the way there, but I don't think you can do that even in contemporary situations, right? Because things mean different things to different people or even mean different things to the same person at different points in time. So it, I think it's probably not the best task for us as archaeologists to set out finding the meaning of any of this. Um, but there are more plausible and less plausible meanings. And our job is to create the, um, the, the context that uh, lends itself to why some interpretations might be stronger than 
other interpretations. Some people are going to be frustrated because I can't say it did or did not mean something, but I can say I think there's a, an argument to be made that it would have meant these things in this context. I can we can say some things that it wouldn't have meant. It wouldn't have it had the opposite interpretations where it was easy to get, that it was abundant, that they 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 didn't think twice about it, uh, you know, things like that. I think um, we can get at that. But uh, I think archaeologists haven't always recognized the power that indexical signs have and that we have that already at our disposal. We're already using it all the time. It's just when you start to put it in the uh, making it explicit about how it's informing your um, your meaning making of, of the past. That's where for me it's been useful and helpful. I understand that the the language that surrounds um, semiotic anthropology can be daunting uh, at best. I totally uh, uh, sympathize with that fact. I struggle with it um, myself, but I do think that there's a contribution that it. And so I hope that people in uh, working in in contexts that are far more removed from the historical record than I do are able to find that useful and use it in their work as well. I'm Lindsay Petrie. I am a first year master's student in the SIAMS program I'm studying archaeology. I am a bioarchaeologist who works in the classical world. Um, so you talk a lot about hybridity being useful for its ability to address power dynamics with a specific focus on colonization um, in your 2015 article. And so I was wondering what your thoughts are on how to approach hybridity when colonization is not a factor and when power relations are not as easy to suss out. And do you still feel the term would be useful in those scenarios? Mm -hmm. So I'm tempted to say, well, that's your problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, I won't. I won't say that. Um, so let me start by saying I think that power relations are a constant of human society. Every interaction is infused with. Um, power relations at some level. So certainly I think um, it can be useful. Um, in the article, I go a long way to say, although you're, you're absolutely right, it does not have to be in colonial situations. Um, it is uh, effective in situations of cultural difference, right? Which is not cultural purity, which I, I really try and hammer home in that, in that article. Um, and certainly we have instances in situations that we don't interpret readily as uh, colonialism um, with that kind of thing happening. So certainly it's useful. In fact, I think it could really be useful. I'm sometimes frustrated by literature that um, will use terminology that seems specifically trying to uh, either elide or just not address those power relations. So, you know, when people talk about dispersals, there is a, there is a place to talk about dispersal. <laughs> but sometimes it seems to me that people are, are actively trying to avoid uh, addressing whether that what was the intentionality of that? The dispersal just sounds like, you know, this is molecules released in the air that are, are mixing. Um, and so when we get back to early human dispersals, so let's like anatomically modern humans coming out of Africa, we, we always talk about it in terms of dispersals. But of course, we all have questions about how do they interact with the Neanderthals, right? So, right there's a whole area of anthropology that I'm not particularly well uh, versed in, so I won't I won't try and go there, but everybody wants to know, did they fight with the Neanderthals? Did they have sex with the Neanderthals? Like, all this stuff, right? Which are all, I think, pretty power-infused um, relationships. So I definitely think it has um, potential, but um, I am with um, people like um, Steve Silliman, 
um, and Kathy Deegan, who are also concerned about this kind of fast and loose use of the term hybridity for any situation where they see um, uh, something like a cultural amalgamation. Um, and I think this has started to happen, particularly in colonial situations in in recent years. And that's when you start to it, it starts to lend itself to these this notion that it's this kind of like, oh, isn't this cute how they're you know the the native people are using the the colonizer stuff in in this cute different way, right? That that's what I was really objecting to in there. That I don't think any of those cute ways are 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 cute when you put it in terms of what's actually happening on the ground in uh, colonial situations. So I definitely think there can be some utility there. I don't think that hybridity is the only, it's not a catch-all term. It's not meant to be a panacea that can be applied um, anywhere. I think I have another article from 2013 or a chapter in a volume that tries to really parse out differences to me where hybridity is distinct from what people have called um, syncretism or um, uh, uh, bricolage or, um, you know, uh, creolization. I think uh, I, I tend to be a, a splitter, not a lumper. That's just my constitution. Um, so I always want to um, get more specificity to these um, terms. Um, and and what I saw missing from a lot of those discussions was um, the power dynamic that had been already emphasized by many post-colonial scholars. So um, this is not original to my research. I was just saying like, hey, if we're going to use this term, like the point of it was supposed to be to highlight these um, power differentials. So um, I, I definitely think there's utility to using it. And I, I don't think it's restricted to colonized um, context, but I don't think it should be spread around um, everywhere that people see two things coming together or more. Hi, my name is Samantha Sampt, and I am a fourth-year PhD candidate in anthropology studying the archaeology of northeastern North America. I focus on the exchange of exotic materials in the 16th century Haudenosaunee homeland, and my question for you is also about hybridity. So in that article, you describe multiple examples of hybridity that are all examples of intentional mixing and that all highlight power dynamics. And you make a point to include examples of material used by both indigenous peoples and colonists. But the concept of hybridity, like you were just saying, seems to be the most useful and do the most analytical work when it's used to find these practices of resistance. As in your case study of the whips from the plains and the Pueblo ceramics from the Southwest. So I'm wondering if we focus on using the concept of hybridity in colonial encounters, Will it make the term less contradictory, like you pointed out in the conclusion? And then would the concept still be criticized as being Eurocentric if it's used mainly to highlight indigenous practices of resistance in those moments? So, sorry, can you repeat the first? Sure. <laughs> so um, at the end of the article, uh, you sum up by saying how the term hybridity can be contradictory. But I'm thinking if we focus on only using it in these colonial encounters, maybe it will be less contradictory because we're using it to find these moments of um, indigenous resistance. So I was wondering what so you So it'll be less, I, I guess I'm wondering what you mean by contradictory. Uh, uh. Sure. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, so I think it's in regards 
uh, you refer to it in regards to power. So it can be seen in um, moments of the subaltern resisting, yep. and then it can also okay. be seen in moments sure. of the colonizer um, forcefully uh, enacting power over right. the okay. colonized. Yeah. And right. in that aspect, it can be contradictory. So right. I'm thinking yep. if we focus it only on the one-way street uh, going against that two-way critique, will it be less contradictory and maybe a more clear analytical huh. concept? That's really an interesting question. Uh, because I am a splitter, I'd say maybe we need two terms and, and we could we could separate it that way. But I do think there are some similarities in the, the process. Uh, I think it has most often been used, um, not just hybridity, but all those other terms that I went through, um, uh, syncretism, creolization, um, um, bricolage, uh, acculturation, um, to focus on the colonized side of the colonizer colonized uh, dichotomy. Um, uh, not that I believe that there is a rigid line between the colonizer and colonized, but uh, you know, we all understand that, that uh, it's been used more frequently on the, the indigenous side. Um, and I think the problem was that that fosters a notion that um, uh, uh, colonizing societies are the producers that supply technology, uh, 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 culture with a capital C to the consumers who are exclusively on the indigenous side. And so that's the one, the notion of one way that it's, it's, um, you know, they're, they're, they're a more passive recipient of, uh, culture. And so that was one of the reasons I really wanted to make sure that I had examples, um, on the other side to show that this is not, um, a feature that we can associate exclusively, not a process that we can associate exclusively with either side. But this is just how humans interact. This is a social reality for for everyone. And so, I, what I really uh, it does partially because archaeologists and anthropological archaeologists tend to study native communities, indigenous communities, uh, a little more so. Historical archaeology is interesting because the history of it actually started um, studying the, under, the, the other side. And so we're at this interesting moment in historical archaeology where, where uh, people like Kurt and, and other colleagues of mine are, are working on, um, uh, you know, kind of balancing this in, in historical archaeology. Um, so uh, I guess I, I, I'd be a little bit leery of... Um, Kind of retrenching and and focusing explicitly just on the um, the side of uh, indigenous peoples in this process because it has this residual effect of making it seem as though they weren't the innovators they're just kind of you know um, taking whatever's given and then uh, remolding it um, uh, and and the other thing is uh, it 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 reifies the notion that there's like pure European culture or something like that right that they're they're driving that one way. So um, lots of people have written about how um, uh, uh, European societies were um, remade uh, as a result of, uh, you know, the post-Columbian expansion of Europeans uh, throughout the world. But um, it's it's often noted kind of as a footnote, like, oh, yeah, we all know that. But then the way we talk about it uh, tends to downplay um, that fact. Like we can all talk about how, um, you know, uh, 
tomatoes were not part of <laughs> Italian cuisine till after uh, the Colombian exchange and or or um, you know there was no Swiss chocolate or, or Irish potatoes or anything like that but it's you know it's an interesting footnote that we then uh, move on from so um, I guess I'm pushing back against um, uh, the notion that this is just kind of a an interesting little tidbit and trying to move it to the center of of this discussion to see, uh, to really take seriously how um, uh, colonizing forces were changed by the colonial effort uh, as well. So um, I think there are differences uh, because of the power dynamics in how they act. So there is more choice about what is gonna be appropriated um, oftentimes on the, the side of the colonizer than there is on the colonized. Oftentimes colonized is forced to make do with the resources they are given because resources are extracted and, uh, uh, you know, uh, protected. Um, that's what colonialism does on the side of the, the, the colonizing power. So I definitely think you're right in that um, it's not that that it's the same thing happening everywhere, but this is where I'm, why I try to highlight that aspect of power because I think it can be very different depending on who's doing it. So it can be for very, um, it can be for like, you know, these, these situations of valiant resistance that we all love to see so much uh, in this day and age uh, that we celebrate in Native peoples, but it can be for more nefarious purposes, uh, you know, for, for um, peoples who are, who are trying to um, convert or change uh, uh, the culture of, uh, on, on the other side. So I definitely think you're right in that there's a distinction uh, to be made there. And um, uh, this is why I say in the article, the identification of um, hybrid practices, I hope will get to be the beginning of the interpretive process and not the end. It's not, okay, we got this and now I can say it's hybridity and then I can move on to looking at other stuff. It's what does that mean when I'm saying it's hybridity? What am I really saying about that, about the power dynamics that are meeting between the two? Sure, yeah, and I really appreciated your uh, focus on resistance in those moments, so thank you. <laughs> Did I get to the second part? I don't know. If I... uh, you basically did. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hi, I'm Liam Murphy. I'm a first-year PhD student in anthropology. I'm interested in uh, Haudenosaunee archaeology and collaborative archaeology. Um, one of the things I've been working on, which I think is maybe an example that could be thought of using this, uh, using hybridity, although I'm, I'm kind of hesitant to kind of go, go in, is I'm, I'm really interested in tobacco pipes. Um, and especially European manufactured tobacco pipes. And I was wondering if you have any thoughts about um, sort of when an indigenous form is taken up by these kind of industrial markets and these capitalist markets, is hybridity still a useful way to think about these kind of um, market-driven processes? So maybe an example like uh, glass bead manufacturing or these mass manufacturing of uh, white ball clay pipes that are then made for import. All, into indigenous communities, but also to European markets and elsewhere in the in the world. It's a really great concept. I haven't. I haven't you can tell that I, I haven't worked in contexts that uh, brush up against uh, industrial processes mm -hmm. uh, as much, or even full blown capitalist processes. I feel like, although it's certainly part of the milieu. So, if you don't mind, I'm going to put it on the grounds of something that I'm beginning to know a little bit about because I have a, a graduate student named Eric Johnson who's um, studying um, uh, 
the production of um, wampum and um, what eventually become these uh, uh, um, hair pipe beads that are traded out to the plains in New Jersey. So uh, the context that he's looking at is this, this um, wampum production in New Jersey by um, uh, uh, European, Euro-Americans who are living in New Jersey. They start to um, uh, produce wampum and there's a, a shift where it goes from this household level um, production to uh, really proto-industrialized production because they invent this machine that helps drill the um, wampum beads. And so now they can drill them 10 at a time. Um, but at the same time, I think that the wampum market is kind of bottoming out uh, here in, on, in the Northeast, um, uh, driven by um, uh, the, you know, the demographic shifts that are happening in indigenous communities. So um, these folks, the Campbells, who run the Campbell Wampum factory, shift and start producing these uh, beads that are then traded out onto the Northern Plains uh, of all places and are incorporated into these um, like breastplates and jewelry and stuff that uh, people are doing there. Um, in all the discussions I've had with Eric about this, I don't think we've <laughs> broached the term hybridity in the entire thing. And it's kind of interesting uh, that we haven't. Um, because uh, clearly there are elements of power that are hugely at play. They're, they're producing a kind of this proto-currency and you guys probably know a lot more about this uh, than I do. Um, and and um, it actually shifts. So in terms of their production, starts out where they get the raw materials, they, they um, um, sell them, I think, to um, a, a lot of women working uh, kind of in the, the countryside around who then um, drill the beads and then sell them back to the Campbell factory. And then there's another plant that Eric's looking at where he thinks they may have um, enslaved people that are um, doing the, the drilling for them. And then of course they invent this machine and then they don't need the um, household level production or the enslaved uh, production anymore because they can drill so many of them um, at a time. So, I mean, you, you can imagine all the power dynamics at play there. And, and again, this is not my research. This is, my students, so I'm just learning about this all myself. Matt, can you just throw some dates in there? Do you know approximately when this is happening? So I want to say uh, 1820, but I could have that totally wrong. Okay. I would have to edit that out and change it. <laughs> <laughs> Reread Eric's proposal uh, to, to um, look at all this. Um, uh, so, but we haven't used the term hybridity for it. And so I guess I start to wonder why haven't we done that? Probably because uh, it seems to me that they're not trying to produce a different type of wampum. Um, they're trying to produce wampum that looks just like, for the most part, even to the point where they have this bleaching process to um, uh, make it white. I don't know how much purple wampum they're able to um, uh, produce out of those, but they're definitely trying to um, replicate. So back to the, the semiotic terminology like they're they're sticking as close to the iconic properties as they can of this because that's where the meaning uh, uh rests that's where the value um of it rests which isn't to say that it's not you couldn't call these hybrid objects just on the fact that they have to bleach them to get them to look at they're actually using i think in some cases a different type of shell than was often being used um uh originally um so uh Short answer would be, yeah, I could see how that could be useful. I could also see people 
um, saying like, whoa, why are you calling this hybrid? Like, I don't see why it is, but maybe that's a really useful thing to do. I mean, one of the things about any of this is um, we are dealing with maps and not territory here, right? When we're talking about the language that we're using to talk about these processes. It's not that uh, it was one thing and, and that can be totally differentiated from something else. All these are unique situations and all of them share some similarities with other processes. So we are the blind men feeling the different parts of the same elephant and trying to come up with the terminology we want to use to, to figure that out. So in a way, I could see it being really useful to say, I'm going to deploy this term hybridity in a different way than people have been using it um, because I think that's, again, uh, this is my, I'm, my own personal interest. It would really throw the power dynamics into high relief by um, doing that and really make us question, as, as Steve Silliman did in the article that you guys talked about when you did the podcast with him, uh, why do we call some things hybrid and not others? When does the process begin and when does it end? You know, Steve and I work in, in very different um, uh, contexts in terms of the material culture we're dealing with. So I think this is why I'm more comfortable because I have things like chalices that are made out of the native um, ceramic type and he's not kind of faced with quite the same um, stark uh, contrast in the constitution of material culture that he's looking at sometimes. Um, so, uh, I mean, I'd, when you when you write that article, I'd love to read it about <laughs> industrialization. Um, uh, I don't see an inherent conflict um, myself. And in fact, I see why that it could be really useful for the rest of us that are that are applying it in cases that seem maybe more obvious or in, in scare quotes. Uh, uh, instances of hybridization um, that it would really help to push us to think about why why nobody asked me if it's appropriate um, you know when I'm looking at the, the quartz on the planes that seems to everybody oh yeah that's a clear example but um, you know if we're looking at industrial produced tobacco pipe um, why that might be as well so it does start to get into I guess the critique would be we start using it for everything everywhere and then it loses its interpretive um, power for that. But we are you are talking about a situation of colonialism, about um, uh, exchange between two societies that I that perceive themselves as uh, different. So this is the notion of cultural difference that I was talking about. So I would think that it would be um, applicable. Okay, uh, Kurt Jordan again. And so, you, you know, so it's, it's interesting to sort of think about possibly extending the concept of hybridity a little bit. And just in our conversation here, I've been thinking about, well, what if we think about Irish, you know, potatoes in Ireland as being, you know, or hot peppers in Thailand or tomatoes in, uh, in Italy, you know, at least in the initial stages. And then maybe at a certain point it becomes part of the doxa or, you know, and, and, uh, and it's no longer that. But if we think about those very early stages, you could do a, a, a very, I, I think, you know, European archaeology might look a little bit, uh, a little bit different. So I think this is, you know, it's great. I, I like the sort of two-faced, um, you know, arrows going in both directions notion of hybridity that you present in the 2015 article. Um, so that wasn't a question, I guess, but um, so I, I actually had a question about process a little bit, and I'm going to focus on the uh, landscape piece from American Antiquity. Um, 
I think in some ways, um, and this is something that it's it's pretty obvious, especially when you have, I think, much more sort of hard science-y processual um, oriented article where they will formally frame hypotheses and uh, um, and and I think uh, what might loosely be called a real a realist position on the on the the scientific process, you often get the feeling that they knew what the answers were before they you know and that it's a narrative convention to sort of put it at the very beginning as an open ended question and then answer it and then uh, uh, but but it's but it's very artificial and I think it may give especially students and, and beginning people, a very unrealistic uh, um, uh, way to understand how things happen. And, and, uh, and I, I got um, I, the, the way that you present obsidian and uh, indexicality in the article, I was just wondering if you might comment a little bit on sort of what came first there, because my sense was that you knew obsidian was going to work as an index, and uh, it, you know you didn't know the details about how it would go up and down, but you knew that there was going to be obsidian from different sources over time, and that this was, and also I think that your community partners were probably sort of said, you know, we, we know that it doesn't start 50 years ago, and that you know if you go and and investigate this. That it's going to say that oh this is a you know a, a, what some people might call an invented tradition right so that might have been something that would steer you away from considering that um, so I, I I know that's a, maybe a bit of a fraud or a little bit too much of a backstage kind of argument but I was also wondering maybe did you have other material classes that might sort of that that you were also considering that might shed light on this about the the connection to the uh, uh, to that, to that really, you know, visually and uh, just ecologically striking area. And I loved your description in the very beginning because I've read plenty of uh, other things that you've written about that general area, and I didn't know that was there really in the same way. And I was like, wow, that's you know, and, and uh, uh, so it, that's a lot to sort of uh, comment on. Sure. No. Um, thanks. It's, it's a great question. Um, so, uh, in terms of formulation of the, the research question in the process. Uh, I had been walking around on sites um, in and around the Hames Valley for over a decade when we uh, started talking about this research. And um, the nature of preservation in the Southwest and the region that I work is pretty excellent. So it, there's no mistaking when you're on top of a site and the middens are visible on the surface and there's lots of literally, you know, millions of pottery sherds in the Hamas Valley and, and millions of uh, obsidian flakes, not to mention other, you know, other stone types, sherds and, and flints. Um, so um, I had walked around, literally walked on top of um, obsidian flakes for 10 years and never thought much about them, partially because I don't have training in lithics. So, uh, you know, it, but partially because everybody knew that we were in the shadow of this ancient volcano and that there were obsidian sources up there. So I never thought to test the obsidian because we all knew that, of course, there's a ton of obsidian because they're sitting right next to the source. Um, then the tribe approached me um, because they were interested in this specific area of the landscape in the Valles Caldera and in um, really tracking their ancestors' history with that part of the caldera. And uh, you hit the nail totally on the head. They had no doubts from the get-go that we were going to find that their ancestors had intensively used um, that uh, part of the landscape. Um, 
I did not necessarily know or even think that that was the case. For me, it was really an open book. I knew there was a ton of obsidian around. I had only recently, uh, it had only recently come to my attention that XRF, you know, this is at a time when XRF technology was becoming much more affordable, much more widely used. And so I had only recently, well, I should, I should back up. First, we started talking about doing work in the caldera, um, which was daunting to me because the sites that I was used to doing all this work on just don't exist up at that uh, elevation. Um, so it's this huge open fields with mountains that are very spiritually charged for these guys, but not the archaeological indicators that I was used to working with. So I thought, well, what could we do? Maybe I could look at like the different types of grasses and, you know, if there's a difference in C3, C4 grasses, maybe we could pull that out if we found the remains. Uh, I mean, the first thought was to look at remains in the Bias Caldera, which there are very, very few. And so right away, we kind of said that's probably not going to work um, as an indicator. Um, uh, so then I had to shift and say, okay, now I have to find the traces of that place at these sites that are not located in that place. And so I thought about faunal remains, uh, thought about um, um, botanical, but th th it's not that big of a separation. Animals are moving back and forth in and out of that area. So um, we kind of threw around some ideas, but it didn't seem like, and we even thought about trying to just experimentally get some of that data to see if it would run, but I, I didn't have a ton of confidence that that was going to return the kind of information that we were interested in. Um, but when I found out that, you know, as I mentioned in the article, there's there's um, five different sources, at least in this immediate area, um, and that, that one of them had this curious property where it wasn't distributed in secondary context, and it happened to be the one in the middle of that space that they were interested in. And I thought, oh, like, well, maybe that will work. I did not know some of the other ones outside there. They're ones that are closer to where their villages were. And so I did, I said to them, look, guys, I'll do this work, but I got to let you know. And this was, again, part of the process about setting up expectations from the beginning. I said, I got to let you know if the numbers come back that, you know, your ancestors were using other sources, it, it, it might not. Show and the guys in the tribe were not <laughs> worried, uh, it, which is really interesting. Not because they knew a ton about obsidian use. I don't think it's not widely used um, uh, in the, the village today. So, in some, I think my impression is in very restricted um, ceremonial context. There's some, but um, uh, I, I have a friend out there who's a, a flint napper who makes stuff, um, you know, for for sale to tourists and everything. And so, um, I have a a letter opener on my desk that um, he made that my advisor gave me when I when I um, graduated from graduate school. And so I asked Jake uh, where he got the obsidian for it, and he buys it from a supplier that ships it from California. <laughs> uh, and then he naps it in the village. So that's really going to screw up an archaeologist uh, <laughs> in the future when they find all the debitage from what he was working. Um, so I don't think they have... Um, as far as I know, at least it has not been... They have not shared an oral tradition with me of their knowledge of that quarry being, um, you know, preferred over the other quarries. 
And in fact, I had heard from modern flint knappers that one of the other ones was the one that they preferred um, because the obsidian wasn't quite as brittle. I mean, these are all, this is like uh, differentiating between a, a Ferrari and a Porsche at this level. <laughs> like it's all pretty good uh, obsidian, but I had heard that this other one, which isn't inside the caldera, so in theory might even be easier to access in the landscape, might be preferred than there are these other two that are kind of right next to some of their older villages that certainly would have been closer. So I wasn't convinced in the beginning that um, it was going to return the kinds of results that we saw. And when we first ran it, I was really pretty surprised that it came out as high um, as it did. Uh, uh, the first paper I gave on this at, at the Pecos conference, which happens every year um, in the, the Southwest, um, was entitled, You Don't Bring Sand to the Beach. Um, because the basic notion was, why would we do an XRF study of obsidian in the Hamas area? Because we know that all the obsidian is going to be from the Hamas area. This is why it had never occurred to me to do that kind of analysis before. Because I wasn't thinking on the micro scale about these individual deposits and um, how they might be located in the landscape and how in this one particular case, it's not distributed in these um, secondary contexts. So, um, Maybe it was, I guess the nice way I would say naivete or, or just ignorance on my part that, uh, uh, but I really didn't know that it was going to return the, the kind of really robust results that I feel like uh, we got out of this um, project. The guys in the tribe had no doubt. I mean, th th this place is so important to them and, and has been the center of their, uh, their culture for a long, long time. Um, that you know, I think I think they probably thought, well, if we don't find it there, we'll we'll find it somewhere else. It's you know, they knew that their ancestors were interacting with that landscape, uh, you know, essentially constantly in the past. So, um, uh, but uh, you know, I did an initial pilot study where we ran a uh, hundred samples, so very small um, collections to start to see the patterning, um, and then. Uh, so had it not worked, that's where we probably would have just folded up shop. Um, but that was encouraging. So then we expanded it and then, you know, the results um, kind of kept coming back. So you're, you're correct in that, you know, if I wrote it up today with a, in a kind of a, a, a hypothetical deductive approach, it would sound uh, much more, uh, uh, you know, that, that I could make it sound like, uh, uh, it was uh, less of this developing, kind of slowly developing process where that, that pilot study was really what gave me the confidence to move on with it. But I've heard, uh, I was talking to a friend who um, is uh, uh, in Europe, in Germany, and she told me that the, the Germans get frustrated with Americans, uh, American archaeologists who make presentations there, because they said Americans always present like, you know, this is what I set out to find, and then I did this, and it gave me exactly the results. <laughs> and she said that the Germans are very much more upfront about, like, we started with this, and this didn't work, and then we did this, and at the end, we got these results, which weren't really what I was trying to get. And so they're much more comfortable, um, apparently, presenting their, their research as, you know, it's, it's always in, in a stage of formation that may not be what they what they set out to do. But um, once she said that to me, I totally 
I mean, this is how we set up everything from grant proposals to oral presentations like I'll give later today to articles like this is how we're trained to to set it up like you knew what you were going to, yeah. you know. I, I mean, there's certainly seeds in there, but I, I mean, you, you said a lot more than ended up in the publication. It seems like there should be venues for this type of discussion, I think. Well, it's uh, interesting you say that <laughs> because Steve Silverman just came out with an edited volume that's 25 case studies um, that he asked us all to talk about the research process. And I think he really means it for graduate students, early graduate students to see how the research process actually uh, gets started. And so I do have a chapter in there where I kind of go through a little bit more about um, my back and forth with the guys in the tribe about doing this. But I think you're right. Um, it's, it's kind of doing our students a disservice that we always present these things in this very polished um, uh, uh, way that makes it seem as though we all knew what we were doing. We, you know, all of us stumble around in the dark trying to uh, figure out where we're going. So it certainly, uh, you know, it depends on the venue, right? You right. Know, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I hold yeah. up American antiquity. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Dana Bardolph again. Um, you mentioned in your response to Kurt Jordan's question about the tribe wanting to track their history, and you mentioned that in the American Antiquity article as well. And I thought that was really striking that you mentioned that tribal officials wanted to investigate their ancestral interactions with the landscape to provide federal land managers with information that could specifically aid in preservation and management of resources in the area. Um, I can think of other native stakeholders in the Southwest, in other regions of Native North America, who are a lot less enthusiastic about archeologists' contribution to reconstructing their past, regardless of whether it may aid in preservation and resource management. Um, I'm thinking, for example, of Sabino Two Bears, who may or Navajo, um, talking about how difficult it is for her to work as a Navajo archaeologist in the Navajo community, let alone outsiders doing Navajo archaeology. Um, so I was hoping you could just talk a little bit about sort of how you began this collaborative relationship, and if you have any advice for people that might want to work with groups perhaps a bit more wary about archaeology. Um. How much time do we have? <laughs> so I, can, I can go on this one for a while. Uh, okay, so I'll try and make this a, a shorter story. Um, uh, I did not do anthropology as an undergraduate. Um, and so when I graduated, I was an English major. So when I graduated, um, I went to work at a high school on the Pine Ridge um, Reservation. So um, I entered anthropology completely naive about the relationship between anthropologists and archaeologists and uh, native communities, like incredibly naive about this. But it had never occurred to me that people would do uh, research on the direct descendants of native people without talking to uh, those. It's just because I had worked, um, you know, on a reservation before. Um, that just seemed to me to be the way that you should do it. I was lucky enough to go to the University of Pennsylvania, where Bob Purcell was my advisor, and he was already working on this type of project with, with Cochiti Pueblo. Um, so from the start, um, you know, uh, uh, that was how I was approaching my research to go to the community first. There was a ton of serendipity in how I ended up at Hamas. So people always ask me for advice and I, I got lucky, um, I won't go too much into the details of it, but it was coming out of um, a huge repatriation that Hamas had done with uh, my 
current employer, Harvard University, with the Peabody Museum in Harvard, um, and um, Phillips Academy in Andover. Um, and out of that repatriation process, uh, there was a desire um, on, on all sides to build uh, an ongoing relationship that wasn't, um, you know, confrontational in the ways that repatriation can often be. So they came up with the notion of a cultural exchange program where they would have um, five students from Phillips Academy come out to Hamas every summer, um, live with um, families uh, in Hamas and do work around Hamas at Pecos where the the ancestral site uh, that had been repatriated and then have everybody come back to the Boston area and so that the, the Hamas students get uh, a, a picture of what life is like um, uh, on the East Coast. Um, and I just showed up at the right time where they had these kids coming in like two weeks and they didn't know what they were going to do with them. And so they were like, okay, great. This guy can um, take them out. Uh, <laughs> uh, and if I had approached it the way I was supposed to, which was write a letter to the governor they probably would have said, no, we don't do this kind of work. And, um, but because there was other stuff going on, I ended up taking these kids out. So at the end of doing that work, I come back and I make a presentation to the, the governor and other members of the tribal council. Um, and I remember I started my first slides, like picture me introducing myself, graduate student, University of Pennsylvania. So I'm Matt Liebman. I'm a graduate student working on the archaeology of the Pueblo Revolt. And the governor says, whoa, 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 whoa. Hang on a second. And he starts talking to the other guys in the room in Toa, you know, all in this language that I was, and I'm just standing there like, oh, for a long time. It was just a long conversation. I'm just standing, standing awkwardly in front of the room. And then finally, the governor just says, "Okay, go ahead." And I have no idea. <laughs> and so I, I give my presentation, and I always say, uh, I think, apparently, I just didn't say anything particularly offensive, right? Um, so they were kind of okay. I mean, I pitched that I wanted to do a non-invasive um, project. It was on um, lands that they were interested in and that there were educational opportunities. I mean, I definitely tried to incorporate um, what was in it for the tribe. This is one, I guess you asked me about advice. One of the things I would say is you have to be able to answer the big question of what's in this for us, right? Um, and that has to be more than just the production of abstract knowledge. I mean, the fact is we all uh, monetize our uh, the archaeological data that we produce because it turns into like this is how I end up, you know, getting a job, you know, being a professor, no matter what you do in CRM, that's what pays your salary mm -hmm. to, you know, as a graduate student, you're probably not paid a ton, but what you, ultimately this is why you get the, the stipend that you do. And the native communities are not naive to that. They can see this process happening, right? So you have to be able to answer really in a very concrete way what's in it for them. And so I have seen people come in and flail in presentations to um, different tribes because they can't answer that $64,000 question, right? So that's one thing I think you, you definitely have to um, be wary of. The other thing that I think I did was I knew what not to say. I knew what not to ask, or I didn't. I mean, I was, I tried to be a listener. I definitely didn't ask the things that I felt like. I think because I had worked in this community before I had taught in this high school and, uh, I became very familiar with, um, how many native communities view, you know, 
white guys from back east. Um, and not that I'm not a white guy from back east. I very much am. But I was very wary about not wanting to, um, uh, uh, you know, emphasize the things that I that made them uncomfortable about, you know, my type, <laughs> for lack of a better word. Um, so I think that that awareness probably helped me in that I apparently didn't alienate too many people early on in the process. Um, so I think that's a, a second thing you can do. In, in addition to um, being able to answer that first big question, second thing is know when to keep your mouth shut and, and, um, and, and be respectful and listen really as much as you, much as you can. Um, and then I guess the third thing I'd say is um, I kept coming back. Mm -hmm. And I think that was one thing that, You'd have to ask my friends at Hamas. Um, I always say it's an ongoing process. They could kick me out next year. Like literally, I could very easily. I hope it doesn't. I, <laughs> I don't think they have reason to. But um, this is, you know, the nature, and that is their their right. You know, if that's what they want to do, I will completely uh, respect that. You know, um, um, but um, I think. There is a, a history of people who do um, this type of research of coming in, doing a research project, and then, you know, they're gone and people haven't seen them in 20 years because they move on to other research projects. The hard thing for me has been educating my colleagues about this, right? So they want to know why do I work in one, the same valley that I've been working in for the last 20 years. And even when I was doing the revolts of the same 14-year period in one valley in, in uh, 20 years. But the reason is because it takes time to build up these relationships, but then also I have a, an obligation to that community now. They have, they have opened their doors and shared a lot of their culture with me that has allowed me to get to the point where I am in my career. So now I feel like I have an obligation to keep going back and being as helpful to them um, as I can. Again, if they ever decide they don't want me around, that's that's their their right to to do so but when they do ask me to work with them on projects like this i'm going to do everything i can to to try and return the favor because they've done they've made my career literally you know so um and i think being aware of the ways in which the very concrete ways that we do um uh benefit from these types of uh, uh, collaborations um, is really important that people have to be very honest about what we get out of that scenario, which always pales in comparison to what the communities are, are getting, you know, so. Thank you. Uh, this is Amy Friedigan. Um When I was reading your work, uh, I really kind of got this idea of temporality in it. Um, at least sort of the, even though you're, you know, you're talking about indexicality and these events, but yet you also have these communities that see the landscape on these long temporal scales, the connection to it with these um, events that are sort of punctuated, that change that meaning. And even in the idea of hybridity, of like how you talked about intentional hybridity turning into more unintentional. Mm -hmm. um, and I was wondering how... Uh, you sort of think about, do you think about temporality with this? And especially knowing that ideas of temporality are different for different 
kind of groups? Um, uh, well, that's a really interesting question that I do think about a lot. Um, I don't speak um, Toa. Uh, that's the language spoken at Hamas. Um, they actively um, aren't interested in outsiders learning the language, but I uh, am fascinated and ask my friends all the time. They have na- they, so their, their ethnogeography is expansive, so they have names for everything on the landscape, especially archaeological sites. And, um, uh, and so I, I constantly ask them about the Toa name for that place and then trying to read you know, you know what meanings might be in that. Um, and, and, you know, I don't think you can, can read anything about Superior Wharf and not wonder about uh, how language might structure um, their notions of, of temporality. Um, so I would love to have that insight. I'm not there yet in working with the community. My language skills just aren't, aren't, aren't there yet to get at that. I certainly think there's a good chance that it's probably pretty different than how I think about it. Um, I am also incredibly lucky to work in uh, an area of the world that has uh, intense temporal resolution, right? And I work in a time period that has the best of that, right? So we have diagnostic tree rings. I'll actually talk about it in my talk this afternoon. Um, that get us down to the year when I did my Pueblo Revolt work. I have sites that I can using tacking back and forth between tree ring dates, the really tight ceramic chronologies we have, and the historical documents. I have one site that I'm pretty sure was occupied for a seven month period. You know, it's it's pretty rare as an archaeologist that you get to do that. So. Uh, I am aware, hyper aware, that I'm just totally lucky and this is not exportable to every other uh, uh, context. And plus, I'm working on the recent end of the spectrum, which highlights that all this stuff. Even more. Although the ceramic chronology gets worse in the time period that I work in than, than some, you know, prehistoric in the southwest over in, you know, like eastern Arizona. They have it down to 25 year uh, spans in a lot of, in a lot of cases. Um, so I, I'm lucky to have that and you're right. And I have these, um, uh, big events. One of the questions that reviewers uh, brought up in the American antiquity article when they were reviewing is they said, well, sure, you can see these, you know, changes in 12 year periods when, when you break down 17th century like that, but what couldn't you have equally dynamic changes going back in that, uh, pre-contact period? Um, and the answer is yes. Um, Dealing with surface remains, I didn't have the resolution to be able to separate it out into, you know, the the decade level resolution that I have at those sites that get founded at the end of the 17th century that that we we just know from tree rings, from ceramics, from historical documents were founded this year and people have left it by this year. So one of the things is in the, the prehistoric context, so from, you know, 1300 through roughly 1600 or at least 1540. Um, there probably are tips uh, and valleys and different things going on. And even at the individual site level, different things might have been going on uh, at these different sites. That's why I tried to break it down um, to look at the general um, trends and how I can see their use of this quarry in the middle of the the Vias Caldera increasing through time, but all I can really do is break that down into 150, 200 year spans because the sites, of course, have the palimpsest effect where people were living on them for a period of hundreds of years. And when I'm dealing with surface remains, only rarely do we have a, a, 
an area that we can spatially segregate to a certain time period. Pretty much the middens are churned up and it's really hard to differentiate um, between those. Um, but I do think one of the things I, I dislike about that approach is it gives the notion that I was trying to push back against in here that um, pre-contact times are this kind of not unchanging, but there's this, you know, this, the landscape was just, these are the associations that they, they had with it. Um, where if I had that kind of, those kinds of punctuated event based, you know, tighter chronologies, I might be able to say something about that. And then that would really get us to the point where what's going on at that time that use is dropping in, you know, some period back in 1380, like why did it happen back then? Um, where the indexicality could, again, come in in handy uh, to get at that stuff. At a certain level, as you guys are all familiar with, dealing with archaeology is, you know, we have this palimpsest effect. We're dealing with a, a smeared picture here and trying to read it back. And, and um, it's rare that you get those kind of really uh, discrete contexts that block it off. Um, it's one of the reasons I gravitate towards historical archaeology. Though, I think. <laughs> um, so I just want to kind of follow up on my last question about hybridity. So you said that it's not a synonym for this general generalized cultural blending, um, but then you mentioned organic hybridity in your article. So I'm just trying to reconcile, like, what are the subtle differences in those two terms, considering that, like, power relations, as you said, are inherent in... in everything. Um, so how, how do you kind of separate those two out? So, um, you know, I'm drawing on the linguistic work of uh, Bakhtin there. Um, I think he probably would have been more comfortable in saying that hybridity is everywhere and everything. I just don't find that as useful for us as uh, archaeologists because of this problem that we talked about, how that tends to flatten the power relations, um, makes um, people on the indigenous side seem like they're passive um, consumers, all those problems that, that we talked about before, um, which, which is not to say that you can't use the term hybridity um, to talk about that, uh, what, what he calls the, 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 the unconscious, the organic processes. And he was really interested in that, and he was much more interested in that than the intentional. So he was looking at how languages form and, and the unintentional ways things are combined to, to um, produce new, not even just words, but meanings, you know, things like that. Um, and I mean, part of this is like, who am I? I'm not the word police. Like, I can't tell you what word you can use or can't use. So if it works for you, like, go ahead and use it. I'm just trying to point out the problems. Um, you know, it, uh, probably going back five or more years, I was attending a lot of sessions at the SHA and at the, at the SAAs. And I was seeing more and more people using hybridity in this wide array of contexts that really seemed, and, and often, I think often I was actually more disturbed by the use in colonial contexts than people using them in, in other ones, um, because it was making it, again, it was just like, isn't this cute how the, the Indians are, are using the material culture of the Europeans? And it, I just thought that there was really a lot more going on there um, that, that could be um, parsed out. So it's not that you can't, you, I mean, you can use it any way you want, I just find it most useful um, to look at those moments of intentional combination. And one of the reasons is because, um, you know, the question has been raised about what is and isn't um, hybrid. So some people would go 
to the to the length and say everything is right like you know this chair contains plastic from one part of the world and steel from another part and we're all living in this hyper world and of course that's true like we can see that going on, on all around but i also think that there are there are def there are moments today and there as there were moments in the past when people are intentionally bringing two things together because they want to put that in your face to tell you something and so the problem was saying hybridity is not useful because it's everywhere and all around us all the time um, is that that overlooks these moments when when people are trying to say something important by jarring you with an image that brings together two things that you didn't think uh, were supposed to go together. Um, and I think if we just wipe it all off the table by saying, oh, well, hybrid isn't really useful because everything's hybrid, then you miss those situations, which are really important um, social moments. And oftentimes, you know, are really important to the people who are producing those to get that message across. And in fact, what I try and focus on is the times when I think that was the primary message that they were trying to get across uh, uh, with that material culture. So um, I just don't want to, you know, put it on the scrap heap and say, we need to move on because we know everything's hybrid. Because I'm saying, whoa. Sure, that might be true, but there are times when people were trying to tell us something <laughs> by bringing these things uh, together, and so um, I don't want to overlook those instances. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. That was a great discussion, and so let's all thank Matt. Thank you, guys. listening to Radio Siams, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our next podcast will be announced soon on siams.cornell.edu, or you can find it on archive.org. You can also follow us on Twitter or on Facebook. Radio Siams is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. You can see all AAA-sponsored podcasts at AmericanAnthro.org. Thanks for listening.